Well, my name is Rick Lyman. For those of you that have not met me or have not had a chance to meet you, I'm one of the pastors on staff here, and it's my privilege to share with you today in the Word of God. But I realize a lot of you are wearing green out there today, and it is St. Patty's Day, and somebody said I should go into the brogue just a wee bit today because I'm not wearing the green, but my eyes are green every single day of the year, so you know that. <laughs> my, Irish my Irish grandmother, Grandma Duffy, Never lost the brogue, and we heard it constantly when we were around here. Later in life, she was confined to a nursing home, a care facility, and my cousin, who is the Archbishop of Kansas City, a Catholic Archbishop, came to visit her one day. And he came and said, Aunt Mary, I'd like to give you a blessing. She was a little bit hard of hearing, so he spoke loudly. She goes, you want to wrestle me? I won't give you much of a fight. On another occasion in that same nursing home, a doctor stepped in, the, in her room one day and said, Mrs. Duffy, I need to examine you. So he began to check her legs and her, thigh, and her upper thighs, and, and she goes, what, what, what are you doing down there? And she goes, well, Mrs. Duffy, I'm checking your lymph nodes. She goes, Lincoln's nose, we won't be finding it down there. <laughs> that aside, we are talking about Caiaphas, the high priest today, as Tracy mentioned, as one of those on the black list, one of those diabolical characters in Scripture. And here we see in the Scripture reading, I'm going to invite you to stand with me as I read it, we see Caiaphas come into his most focal moment in the Scriptures, where he emerges at a mock trial that he creates for our Savior, Jesus Christ. Hear the word of the Lord from Matthew 26 and John chapter 18. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they couldn't find any, though many false witnesses came forward and testified falsely against him. Their statements did not agree. Finally, Two stood up and declared this false testimony against him. This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Yet even then their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. They all asked, are you then the son of God? And again, the high priest Caiaphas said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the son of the blessed one. You were right in saying, I am, replied Jesus. But I say to all of you, in the future, you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes. You see, he has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? He asked. Look, now you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? We have heard it from his own lips, they answered. He is worthy of death. They all condemned him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Can you join me with a word of prayer? This is God's holy word, and we want to pray that the Holy Spirit, who both inspired these words to be written and also inspired all of what we know and understand about God to help us understand them and apply them to our lives. And please, I invite you to pray for me as I share God's word today, battling a little something in my throat. It sounds okay now, but your prayers will carry me through today. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you for your holy word. It truly is the only light we need on our path of life. It teaches us about you. It shows us the way of truth. It helps us understand good from evil, and it guides us in every aspect of our being. Help us to hear your word speak to us this day, and even more importantly, help us live into the things you draw us into. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. A few years back when my family first moved here to Oakbrook, back in the late 60s, it was the 4th of July week, and a lot of festivities are going on. A lot of us were having a lot of fun with fireworks. And uh, one day, my younger brother Paul was nine, I'm about 11 years old, um, had walked, walked, wandered through the neighborhood minding his own business, and he didn't realize that his brother, me, was on the other side of Ginger Creek that day, literally blowing up the neighborhood with a large supply of M80s and silver salutes. Those are very powerful fireworks and blowing it up. He's wandering along, minding his own business, and a police cruiser comes and kind of cuts him off and asks him, young man, do you have any fireworks in your pocket? And he sheepishly looks in his pocket, and yes, I've got a small package of ladyfingers unopened. They grab him, throw him in the back seat of the police car, and whisk him over to the Oakbrook Police Department. They arrested him, and they called my mom at home in Oakbrook and my dad at work in the city and made them come to take him. He was trembling in his boots first at the police station, but much more when he was, realized what hot water he was in when he got home. The problem was my younger brother Paul happened to be wearing a green shirt that day, and the police got a call that some kid was blowing up the neighborhood wearing a green shirt. That kid actually was me on the other side of the subdivision. I, too, was wearing a green shirt that particular day. So Paul was falsely accused, he was falsely condemned, and he paid the price for the sins of another, the brother that shared the same room with him. That's kind of what Jesus is going through here. He's being falsely accused, and they couldn't even get their stories to agree. I later confessed to Paul it was actually me, and he never ratted on me that I was the one. He held his peace. We've been close ever since. We've been best buddies ever since. <laughs> so who really was this Caiaphas? Well, we got a great caricature, a character picture from uh, Ali. But according to the historian Josephus, a Jewish historian, Caiaphas was appointed high priest of the Jews by the Roman procurator. Not God's way of doing it, but the Romans were starting to pick out the high priests in those days, Valerius Gratus who was the predecessor of Pontius Pilate in about 18 AD, so about 15 years prior to the account we've just heard today. And he was removed in AD 36, so Caiaphas was extremely powerful. He was in that office of high priest for 18 years. He was born of the tribe of Levi, the right tribe for a priest to come from, and he'd married the daughter of the high priest prior, Annas. But because the Romans really didn't like this Annas guy very much, they offered the high priest's office to the highest bidder every year. This tells you a little bit about the wealth of our buddy Caiaphas, who was able to bid the most for that office to keep it for 18 years. He belonged to the party called the Sadducees, and the Sadducees were a very secular group. Here's a little detail about this particular group of people. During the time of Christ in the New Testament, the Sadducees were the aristocrats. They tended to be very wealthy and held powerful positions, including that of the chief priests. They had the majority of the seats on the Jewish ruling councils of Sanhedrin so they could sway the votes however they wanted. And they worked hard to keep peace with Rome because they had an agreement. As long as they did their part of the deal, the Romans would leave them alone. 
And because these Sadducees were much more interested in politics than they were in religion, they were pretty unconcerned about Jesus until his fame started to grow and still what he was, what he was doing started to encroach upon their little deal that they had. So we can see that Caiaphas, as the leader of this group, was somewhat religious, but he certainly wasn't particularly spiritual. He is actually one of history's most reviled and enigmatic men. Caiaphas is often portrayed in histor by historians as malevolent, as mad for power, and truly doing everything he could to please the Romans and not serve the Jewish people. As high priest, Caiaphas made a personal fortune by imposing a temple tax on all those in Israel. That's not what the Bible ordered, but he figured out a system that he could start charging people to come to church, to come to the temple. And he also held the racket of the selling of the animals and the money changers tables. So you can see why he had a little bit of an issue with Jesus, because twice during Jesus' ministry, he had gone into the temple and drove out those people selling, violently drove out the people selling oxes and calves and, and goats to try and make money. He was affecting Caiaphas' livelihood. So what was the job actually supposed to be as the high priest? Well, the high priest served as the Jews' representative before God. Caiaphas was representing them before the Roman government. He was off base from the very beginning. And the most important duty of the high priest every year, ordained by God, was to go one time a year on the Day of Atonement into the Holy of Holies. You know, in the tabernacle experience in the Old Testament and then in the temple, there was this Ark of the Covenant. You remember it most from the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark, I suppose, where that beautiful golden thing, and then they open it and they all get vaporized. It's really cool. But that place was the mercy seat. And on the Day of Atonement, the high priest's job was to take the blood of sacrificed animals in there to make atonement. A holy, a sacred, an important thing. That was his job. But here on this particular day, he has the very Lamb of God right in front of him and doesn't recognize him. He also was in charge of the temple treasurer, as I mentioned, so he had all kinds of people, including about 20,000 priests, reporting to him. All the Jewish priests throughout the Roman Empire reported to him. This is a powerful individual. But he's a bit more of a politician than he was a priest. And as a politician, he saw Jesus from a political view. It required that this enemy, Jesus, now enemy of what he was doing, what he was about, just simply had to be destroyed. He was heartless, unprincipled, ungodly and actually illegitimate because it wasn't God's ordination to put people like that in that place. And he presided over an illegal trial of Jesus. Back in 2013, a lawyer and former spokesman for the excuse me, judiciary of Kenya filed a petition with the International Court of Justice in the Hague, Netherlands, seeking a retrial of Jesus Christ and naming his defendants, the state of Israel, King Herod, various Jewish leaders like Caiaphas, and Roman leaders, including Pontius Pilate. A spokesperson for the ICJ, however, said that the court has no jurisdiction in such a case, for it is not an issue between governments. You think we've been treated unfairly? Jesus Christ can't even get a fair trial now, centuries later. And add to this illegal trial a few other particulars that Caiaphas oversaw and orchestrated. It was illegal because it was at nighttime. First of all, that was illegal. There were false and altered charges accepted as fact. There was a denial of due process, certainly. 
There was brutal physical abuse that happened on that day, ordered and overseen by the high priest Caiaphas. And in some, over 30 violations of legal process, according to the standards of rabbinic law and Roman law, were violated during this brief little trial that Caiaphas orchestrated. Author Erwin Linton remarks this, unique among criminal trials is this one, in which not the actions, but the identity of the accused is the real issue. There was a presumption of guilt and a death sentence intended before this so-called hearing ever started. Mark 14.55 captures it. I read it a moment ago in our opening reading. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence. They didn't have any real evidence of any kind. They're looking for false evidence for this purpose against Jesus so that they could put him to death on false pretexts. But they did not find any. So why do we think Caiaphas wanted to condemn Jesus to die? Well, I think there's many reasons, but they include things like he claimed to be God. He claimed deity. Interestingly enough, the high priest at any time in the three years of Jesus' public ministry could have said, can we sit down and talk? I'd like to know what you're doing. I'd like to find out what you're saying. Is it possible that you might be the Messiah? There was no interaction, no representation that they'd ever had a personal conversation. One member of the Sanhedrin, the same group, had come to Jesus, Nicodemus, we know, to ask questions. He was curious, not Caiaphas. He was pretty upset about the miracles Jesus was performing. Now think about what kind of person's upset when sick people get better, when lepers who are terminally ill are healed, when a dead person named Lazarus is raised from the dead. That bothered him instead of encouraging him. Jesus' teachings were just a bit radical from the priest's point of view as well because the people loved them. The priests giving their teachings every day in the temple and the synagogues was like the Charlie Brown teacher. Wah, 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 wah. You know that. There was nothing to it. Jesus brought life. He brought words that turned people towards God and, and vibrantly revolutionized their spiritual life. And their teachings were dead to people. And then his popularity began to swell. People were following him, the word was getting around, and more and more people wanted to see Jesus and listen to him than wanted to listen to any of the other priests or teachers of the law, including Caiaphas. And then Jesus often took swipes at the religious traditions that these priests had created for their own benefit, including such things as that temple tax. And he ultimately threatened their wealth and power. That's what was really bothering Caiaphas. But Jesus, the only person, human being, that never sinned, the spotless Lamb of God, willingly submitted himself to this terrible injustice. Violent physical torment beyond imagination, multiple brutal beatings, Roman scourging, and a hideous crucifixion. But Jesus submitted himself to this for you and for me. He gave his all to protect and save all of us. A few years back in Ronald Reagan's first inaugural address, he referenced the simple white grave markers in the Arlington National Cemetery, which go across the horizon in that place. He said, under one such marker lies a young man, Martin Trepto, who left a job in a small-town barbershop in 1917 to go to France with the famed Rainbow Division. There on the Western Front, he was killed 
trying to carry a message between battalions under heavy artillery fire. We are told that on his body was found a diary. On the flyleaf under the heading, My Pledge, he had written these words, America must win this war. Therefore, I will work. I will save. I will sacrifice. I will endure. I will fight cheerfully and do my utmost as if the issue of the whole struggle depended on me alone. What amazing and courageous words from one soldier. The profound reality is, my friends, that Jesus, as he stood before Caiaphas in the Sanhedrin on that day, the man with the greatest power and influence in all Israel at that time, in fact, did have the entire weight of the human race for all time on him. Jesus knew what was at stake. Jesus, instead of thinking about what was best for him, to walk away from the whole thing, call for 10,000 angels to destroy those trying to convict him, he did what was best for us. In stark contrast, our villain Caiaphas' primary sin was self-interest. And his self-interest prompted him to do these things. He earnestly sought for a way to kill Jesus for many months. This wasn't just an act of rage in a moment of time, but four months prior to this mock trial we're talking about, around the time Lazarus was raised from the dead, John captures these words with the, the leaders talking and Caiaphas at the center. What are we accomplishing, they said. Here, this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Then one of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all, he said. You do not realize it is better for one person to die than for the whole nation to perish. So from that day on, four months prior to the mock trial, they plotted to take his life. So you see, from that day forward, Caiaphas goes after Jesus with an intensity and a ruthlessness that would make most mortal men shake in their sandals. This is what we would call premeditated conspiracy to commit murder. And by the way, the Ten Commandments, which every Jew knew, and certainly these teachers of the law knew very well, right in the middle of it says, thou shalt not what? Kill, murder. It's right there. These were the top spiritual leaders, the teachers of the law, who ignored that completely to break one of the original 10 because of their self-interest. The second thing Caiaphas did, he instigated an illegal arrest of Jesus. Two days prior to this particular Passover we're talking about, the scripture says, then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas. He used, God uses his name a lot in this, so we know exactly who we're talking about. And they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and to kill him. There was scheming going on behind the scenes. The third thing he did was arrange, let's find a secret way. Let's get one of the insiders and pay them off. Again, money and power were his whole thing. So he offers Judas a relatively small amount of money for the, what was at stake. He offers him 30 pieces of silver, and Judas goes, yeah, I'll take that. Sounds like a pretty good deal. I'll set it up. We'll meet him on Thursday night in the dark. I'll get the whole thing arranged for you. And then he presides over a prearranged kangaroo court. In the middle of the night, there's 70 people at his house just at the right time. The whole Sanhedrin's there. 
This was calculated. This was thought through. They arranged every part of it. But in this little trial, one piece that doesn't get much coverage is in a show of triumph, Caiaphas leads the officers of the Sanhedrin with the first blow to Jesus' face. He couldn't wait to take a swipe at Jesus physically, after which he had Jesus blindfolded and beaten brutally right in front of him. That beating was exceptionally cruel if you think about it. The crucifixion is the worst of it, obviously. But if you're blindfolded or had a paper bag over your head and your hands are tied behind your back, and large men are punching you at will from every side right in the face, you have no ability to dodge, to move, or get away from it because you don't know where it's coming from. They began to spit in his face and asked him to prophesy who hit you as they beat him over and over again. Amazingly enough, the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 52 prophesied this exact thing where it says his appearance was disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. Likely a broken nose, broken cheekbones, many teeth knocked out, both eyes black and his face badly swollen. And Caiaphas was loving it. He then proceeded out of his self-interest to present false charges to Pilate to get him executed. You see, he was the actual mastermind behind the whole process of Jesus going to the cross. He's the real villain behind the execution of Jesus. Pretty bad character we're talking about here, aren't we? But if we're honest, and I'm talking about gut-level honest ourselves, isn't it our self-interest, the very root sin that we deal with almost every single day? Now, Caiaphas had the Torah, the Bible, the temple, and the traditions which he mastered and he knew and trusted. He was the head honcho. He, along with that entire Sanhedrin, knew the promise of the Messiah was real and to be expected. But when he was right in front of him and all of them, he wasn't what they wanted for a Messiah or what they expected. I think we very often resist God's initiatives with us. When God isn't acting the way we think he should, we resist change that he calls us into that takes us out of our comfort zone. And when Jesus doesn't answer our prayers exactly the way we've ordered him to wait on us hand and foot, we get upset. He's not the savior we want him to be. He should have done this. He should have helped that. He should have prevented that. And we can slip into that self-interest. You see, it's our self-interest in putting our selfish desires first that causes us to kick Jesus out of our little kingdom because to really follow him would require some real change on our part. Our self-interest prompts us and allows us to pass judgment and condemn people or people groups without ever seeking to know, to listen, or to understand them. We just write people off as dead to us for our reasons. Our self-interest makes us blind and insensitive to the needs of the poor and the homeless, the oppressed, the broken and the destitute among us, and in many cases, maybe right in front of us. It's our self-interest that prompts and causes the arguments and disagreements and feists that we have with people. It stirs the cauldron of jealousy and envy when we see other people having what we wish we had or think we should have and makes us hate them. It prompts us to act on immoral and lustful thoughts. It causes relationships to break down and, and to break up. 
It may cause us even to lie to our employer to save our own sin, even though a skin, even though we know lying's a sin. Our self-interest may actually have us misrepresent facts to someone so that we can throw someone else under the bus and save ourselves. If our self-interest grows enough, it allows our anger to turn to rage and rage to vengefulness and vengefulness to outright hatred, which is the opposite of what we want to be like, or even to lie to our spouse about adultery, or to slander someone behind their back to somehow gain advantage over them, gossip about a friend or neighbor and just ruin their reputation, and on and on and on. None of us want to be identified with this kind of selfish self-interest or certainly identified with Caiaphas. So what's the cure for what I'll call the Caiaphas flu? Well, it's repentance, friends. We're in that Lenten season. We're thinking about growing and changing and doing a heart-level about-face. When we see any trace of these sinful qualities beginning to creep into our lives, and how can we do this? Well, instead of rejecting Jesus as Caiaphas did, is to invite him in, invite him into the inmost parts of our being and saying, Lord Jesus, come inside of me. And the Psalm, and Psalm 139 gives us the exact formula and the cure I'm talking about. Psalmist says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. The New Living captures it. Point out anything in me that offends you, God. So instead of us having Jesus on trial and mad at him for what he didn't do or didn't come through, why does he allow evil and all of that, we're letting him be the judge, the benevolent judge that says, let me help you. Let me point out the truth in you. Let me show you how to live differently. When we allow him to do that, we begin to grow in leaps and bounds. And our self-interest can be transformed into selflessness, like Paul spoke of Timothy, his disciple, in Philippians chapter 2. Listen to these words. He says, I have no one else like him, Timothy, who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Pretty searing words. Everyone looks out for their own interests not the interests of Jesus. A while back, George Barnett did a study. He's done all kinds of studies and polls, but he asked a group of people, a large group of people, to use single words to describe Jesus. You might have read this a while back. Here's the five words that top that list. Wise, accepting, compassionate, gracious, and humble. I think they got that pretty right. He asked the same group, large group of people, to use single words to describe Christians. Here's the five words. Critical, exclusive, self-righteous, narrow, and repressive. Wow. There's a vast difference, my friends, in knowing what the Bible says and being the personal expression of the loving Savior himself. Caiaphas knew the Bible inside and out. He was a theologian. He was a scholar but he didn't know Jesus or God, even when he was standing right in front of him. I know today that all of us want to be a lot more like Jesus than like Caiaphas. So friends, let's make it our aim to go in that direction. I want to close with something that was reported in the New York Times in 1992. 
Israeli archaeologists had discovered the family tomb of Caiaphas, the Jewish high priest we're talking about. It was buried in an ancient cave on the outskirts of Jerusalem, and the family's bones were sealed in ornate and elaborately carved ossuaries, which are ceremonial boxes used widely by the Jews in the late first century. Archaeologists say no comparable evidence exists for the remains of any such major figure mentioned in the New Testament. The age of the bones, the inscriptions, and the ossuaries, and the artifacts that surrounded them all point directly towards his influential family. But friends, the bone box or the burial vault of Caiaphas still contains his dusty remains to this day. While the grave he condemned Jesus to was only occupied for three days. And it's still empty today. Because Jesus was really telling the truth as he testified before the hypocritical high priest, death will never hold the author of life down. Imagine the absolute horror Caiaphas will feel when he meets the true judge of all face to face. And it is the Lord Jesus Christ, the just judge, asking him the questions. And one day Caiaphas and every one of us, like you and me, will in fact see this Jesus face to face, the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven, just as Jesus said. How we handle Jesus in this life will directly determine how he will handle us on our day in his court. You may be one of those hearing me today that are still trying to figure out what you want to do with Jesus and really not giving him much attention. That's you today. Right now, I encourage you to take this opportunity to bend your knee before the king. Because one day, every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. We can do it willingly today and humbly in this life, or like Caiaphas, be compelled to do it on that day. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word that you give to us. We thank you the gift of conviction comes to our hearts, which both helps us see where we need to grow and then gives us the power by your Holy Spirit to move in your direction. Lord, we invite you to search us. I invite you to search me on this day. Try me. Show me my faults. Show me the things in me that are offensive to you and are hurting others around me. And Lord, lead me in your path of life today. I pray specifically for some that have never let you into their hearts in that way. May it be their opportunity this very day to open their hearts and say, Lord Jesus, come in. There's things about me I simply can't change. I can't undo. I can't forgive. But I invite you in to be my Savior and my Lord this day. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen.